Thanks, Kozan. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, everybody. Uh, it is always a tremendous pleasure for me to be here at Upaya, sort of, in this way. But in person, too, I've been there many times. And I'm really happy to be addressing all of you this morning. Thanks to Roshi Joan for her tireless efforts to open the world to Dharma and Dharma to the world. And to uh, Kozan and Kodo and in the, in the entire Upaya community for making this possible. And I, and I do feel uh, really honored and grateful that I'm able to offer this opening talk for the Gathering Dharma series which uh, Kozan has explained is meant to be uh, a powerful and important force for good in the world as we talk to one another and to our friends. We want to uh, strengthen our compassion and confirm and affirm and strengthen our bodhisattva vow to be of benefit in this troubled world. So this morning I want to talk about Kshanti Paramita, the Paramita of patient forbearance. The practice of facing suffering and finding peace. But before I do that, I want to quote for you what it says on the Upaya website. And I want to read it for you as you breathe and are quiet as a kind of guided meditation. This is what it says uh, on the opening page of the Upaya website. Upaya Zen Center's global community finds itself grieving the tragic loss of life in Ukraine, Gaza, Israel, and the 30 other wars raging on our planet at this moment. We stand upright and open as we call not only for a ceasefire, but a ceasing of war in our time. Our hearts cannot turn away from the truth of pervasive suffering, sorrow, and death as a result of war. And for this, we urge that this be a time of deep dialogue reaching past differences of recognizing that the terrible cost of war passes through generations and that the impact of war on our earth is inestimable and that we must realize our basic humanity and sanity for the sake of all at this time and those who are yet to be born. It is hard to imagine uh, in this moment an end to the wars in Ukraine and Israel, Gaza, as well as the many other wars going on right now in the world. 
It's also hard to imagine uh, the swift turnaround on the environment that we so desperately need because in addition to the direct climate-related suffering, uh, ongoing environmental dread is driving political, economic, and social forces that are making life so difficult in many, many ways for so many people. And it's hard to imagine from where we are standing right now economic justice and a commitment to true caring for all those in need everywhere in the world. In a world as troubled as this one seems right now, it seems difficult to imagine peace and stability. Or maybe I should say the opposite. Actually, it's easy to imagine peace and stability. We can imagine them and we can feel them, even though we can't expect them anytime soon to be the conditions of our world. But we can imagine them, we can feel them, and we can actually live them in our hearts right now. We can live them in our breathing, in our silence right now. We can live them in our conduct right now. And we need to be doing that. And we need to be keep on doing it as long as we live and beyond. Because what we can imagine will happen one day. And in the meantime, without unrealistic hopes, we need to do what we can to bring these things about. War especially is so sad and so destructive and so preventable. It is always so shocking, a war. You know, you ask, why with all the human problems that we have that are so difficult to deal with, do we need to go ahead and make more problems that we don't need to make? Isn't it so simple? Peace, not war. Just don't fight. Don't bomb anybody. Don't kill anybody. Don't burn down buildings. Don't destroy cities. Isn't it easier not to do that than it is to do that? And yet, war happens over and over again. I think now what's so sad is that we kind of were almost thinking we were beyond it. And yet here it is. So we are practicing Zen Buddhism, which is a Bodhisattva practice, a Mahayana Buddhist practice. The Mahayana means great vehicle, which includes everyone and everything. As Mahayana Buddhist practitioners, we strive to be bodhisattvas, beings who want to keep on practicing for the benefit of others, on and on and on, until all worlds everywhere are peaceful and all beings realize Buddhahood, which will take a very long time. 
but we will go on with our practice until that day comes. Fortunately, the effort to do that is so joyful that it's fine. We're not in a hurry. We just want to keep on going uh, with our joyful practice. And we have a way to do this. It's not vague. It's a way. And there are many ways to define it, but one way is the six paramitas, six perfections, six practices that we commit ourselves to doing for our whole lives that will purify the world and help beings. And the six practices are dana paramita, generosity, shila paramita, ethical conduct, kshanti paramita, patient forbearance, virya paramita, joyful effort, dhyana paramita, focused meditation, and prajna paramita, the wisdom of selflessness. So this is our path. And this is what sustains us in the bodhisattva practice of caring for all beings. But maybe, of, of all six of them, maybe today we might say Kshanti Paramita is the one we really, really need. Because being alive is a question of confronting obstacles. There's no living without obstacles. And Kshanti Paramita is the practice of facing and merging with those obstacles. In a troubled world especially, bodhisattvas need lots of patient forbearance if they're going to continue to make effort on behalf of sentient beings and sustain that effort every single day for a lifetime and beyond. So bodhisattvas take a lot of care to develop and perfect their practice of patient forbearance. And they prize this practice very, very much. So this morning I want to specifically address how bodhisattvas receive suffering, how we practice in the midst of suffering. Everybody knows that Buddhism is famous for its emphasis on suffering. First Noble Truth, all conditioned existence has the characteristic of suffering or dukkha, radical unsatisfactoriness. Second truth, suffering has a cause. Third truth, suffering can end. Fourth truth, the Eightfold Path. Right view, right intention, speech, conduct, livelihood, effort, mindfulness, meditation. The wholehearted path involving our whole lives that will bring an end to suffering. And, and that those four truths uh, really say everything about Buddhism that anyone needs to know. But of course, you have to ask, what exactly do we mean by suffering? In Mahayana Buddhism, suffering is understood in a, in a nuanced and complex way. Instead of practicing to end suffering, Bodhisattvas vow to completely understand and embrace suffering. This is because their primary motivation is compassion. Bodhisattvas are really not interested in ending, ending suffering for themselves while others continue to suffer. 
they want to be with suffering beings in order to help. But also, bodhisattvas understand that the real meaning of ending suffering is going beyond the self that suffers. That is, caring about and identifying with others rather than self is itself the end of suffering. Bodhisattvas realize there is no other way to end suffering than to live with full compassion, to stand in solidarity with sentient beings, to feel what sentient beings feel, and to completely become the suffering of sentient beings. That's the only way. That's seeing reality as it truly is. So compassion is not a, a noble option for bodhisattvas, something that they nobly undertake. It's simply the truth of how things are. There couldn't be any other way. And, and living this truth is the fundamental way that bodhisattvas bring healing to the world. I think all of us are activists. All of us are doing what we can to be of service to others. Actually, it is impossible to live without action every day. And when we have made a commitment to be bodhisattvas, every action that we do is dedicated to the welfare of sentient beings and we're always trying to see what we can do from where we stand to be of help to others and then we're doing that thing. What we call activists or activism is a special category of people and activity that is dedicated to voicing social issues and social ills for the purpose of drawing attention to them so that they can be rectified. And we can be activists in that specific sense too. But activism in the widest sense is something we practice all the time, every day in all of our activity, to cultivate the heart of compassion and to act with compassion all the time. Now, when we make this commitment, sure, we have to develop skills so that we can be effective in our helping. Yesterday I was talking to uh, a group of doctors and nurses who were in a training program to further develop the skills they already have uh, to help others. I also frequently work with people who are conflict resolution professionals who are trying to develop peacemaking skills. So yes, we need people who are skillful in peacemaking, people who are skillful in caring for the human body, but we need all kinds of skills to help beings in this world. Every profession, every kind of work is helping work when it is done with bodhisattva intention and bodhisattva spirit. So we should never feel powerless, like there's nothing we can do. 
there's a lot we can do every single day because bodhisattvas help everyone in every way and people need all kinds of help. So we need skills and we need to do stuff. But beyond this, bodhisattvas want to understand and embrace the suffering. They want to be able to share the suffering with the people they're taking care of so that people will feel accompanied in their suffering and illuminated and magnified in their suffering. So bodhisattvas really want to understand, even while they're working, to end suffering. They don't want to jump over the suffering. They want to understand the suffering and really embrace it and appreciate it. Now, I think we all know this, but it's worth saying, because sometimes we forget, there is no end to physical and emotional suffering. There's no end to it. Sickness, old age and death, loss, despair, hopelessness, anguish, these things will not be eliminated as long as human beings have bodies, hearts, minds and souls. But if we understand suffering, and really understand suffering, we can bear all these forms of suffering with strength and a quiet heart. And then the suffering is not suffering. It's not suffering anymore. It's life at its most honest and most noble. So again, what is suffering and how do we practice it in such a way as to be a blessing to the people we're trying to take care of? How do we do that? So uh, we have a uh, Everyday Zen, you know, has a Dharma seminar and we've been studying the Dharma every on a week, weekly seminar for many decades now. And lately we've been studying a text of the Buddhist sage Vasubandhu about the Vijnaptimatrata teachings. Uh, Vijnaptimatrata means something like representation only or concept only or consciousness only. In this text, Vasubandhu is telling us that we are fundamentally mistaken in the way we see and experience the world. We see things as separate and weighty and out there. I'm over here, the world is over there. We only see actually three things, and this is a ridiculous way of putting it, but, but actually I think it's true. We see three things only. Thing number one, ourselves, me, you know. Thing number two, everybody else. <laughs> and thing number three, the whole universe, the stage on which our drama unfolds. Since the second and third categories are very, very large, and the first category, the one we really care about most, is very, very small, we have a very big problem. Others in the world are always having a big impact on us. 
And much as we would like to control those things, they're way too big for us to control. And this makes life very hard. And this is why we're suffering. And, and of course, we fear that suffering, and we are going to do whatever we can to avoid it in the first place. So much of what we do, you know, is motivated by trying to stave off the suffering. And when we can't stave it off, when it's there, when it appears, we do battle with it. A battle that we usually lose, but every now and then, you know, we, we win the battle. Sometimes I wonder whether people undertake the commitment to help end the suffering of others because they don't want to look at suffering and they want to just immediately leap over the suffering and do battle with it and win. And that's why they're helping others. And sometimes, you know, we do have wins, but mostly, no, mostly we don't win. The suffering of the world is way stronger than any one of us. Even if we were to spend, as so many people have done and are now doing, an entire lifetime taking care of the sick or working to end war, there will be just as many sick people and just as many wars at the end of our lives as there were at the beginning. The Vijnapti Matrata teachings, which are quite detailed and subtle, say that this whole setup that I've been describing is not actually the way it is. And worse than that, it's the reason why we suffer and why we are causing suffering and experiencing suffering. The real truth is everything we experience is not weighty and out there and standing over against us. It is intimate and present right in the middle of our lives, right in the middle of our hearts. All the operations of the senses are intimate and present in the middle of what we are. Zen is famous for pointing this out. The sound of the bird is not over there in that tree. It's right here in my mind. Others are not outside of me. They are literally inside of me in my thoughts and feelings they are me and I am them and the only world we have ever lived in and the only world we can possibly live in is the world of our own experience any world we cannot experience directly through our senses and in Buddhism our senses include not only the five physical senses but also thinking and feeling and imagination any world not able to be experienced by these does not exist for us. Life for us is what we experience through our senses, mind and heart. 
So there is nothing over there, nothing outside, and nothing inside. There's just experience, moment after moment after moment. And as we know, our experience is fundamentally conditioned by our concepts in a very subtle way, so subtle that we don't notice this. We say, that's a bird. And we know we've heard a bird. Oh, that's my cousin. And we see the person in front of us. All experience is ultimately conceptual. All experience depends on consciousness. If there's no brain opening ourselves up to consciousness, then there's no experience, there's no world. This is what Vasubandhu is teaching us. Now there is no way we could eliminate our conceptual frameworks because that's the way our human mind works. That's the way we are set up to be in the world. We're not trying to eliminate our conceptual frameworks. But when we know them as conceptual frameworks, we can be free of them. We no longer need to be spun around by them. And they no longer need to cause us so much suffering. Knowing conceptual frameworks as conceptual frameworks and not mistaking conceptual frameworks for ultimate real things is more than an idea. It's something we can actually train in. It's something that little by little we can feel in our hearts, that little by little can be a way we live. And when we practice this, we become intimate with our human experience and we become intimate with others and the world and suffering stops being something that we dread and fear something alien an enemy what we call suffering becomes a valuable and necessary part of our being human together and when we see suffering that way our whole relationship to it completely changes. We fully accept suffering and we appreciate its depth even though as bodhisattvas we do what we can to alleviate it we are not making it into an enemy. We really appreciate it. And you know this this Vijnapti Matrata teaching although uh, in Zen we don't necessarily you know, reference it directly or study it directly, classically anyway. But it's it's actually the more or less the theory behind zazen. Uh, with so many people uh, here, I'm sure that not all of you are Zen students. But in in zazen, Zen way of meditating especially our Soto Zen way, 
we are simply sitting down in the present moment of being alive, of this experience that we call life. So our method is to pay attention to our posture and to our breathing and to return again and again to posture and breathing. But actually we're not doing breathing practice per se. What we're doing is using the breathing and the posture to return again and again to the intimate experience of what it is to be alive, to breath, to body, to sound and sight, to thinking, to feeling, to sensation, just being alive. And in practicing this way, we are cutting through conceptual thinking. Now, conceptual thinking might come up a lot while we're sitting there. But when we're sitting there, we know conceptual thought as conceptual thought. We can appreciate it. We can let it go. We don't need to be compelled by it or upset by it. And we no longer see anything whatsoever in our experience that needs to be denied or avoided. We are fully willing to let life be as it is. That's the way we practice Zazen. Now, if you hear this, you might say, well, that's not how it is when I meditate. <laughs> Maybe you think, well, you know what? I don't agree with you. <laughs> I don't agree with you. I think that your meditation is that way. But because you have a habit of seeing yourself in a particular way and not in some other way, you are not as alert, as alert to what your experience really is as you might be. We are all pretty convinced, aren't we, that we are separate, substantial persons with various built-in condition characteristics, And we are not used to seeing that we are also more than that. But we are, every one of us. And I guarantee you that if you keep on sitting with devotion regularly, eventually you will appreciate exactly what I'm saying, if you don't already your point of view will become lighter and more porous and you will have a lot more kshanti paramita, patient forbearance with yourself, with others and with the profound reality of human suffering. Now, I think that our usual view of suffering is that suffering is a failure. If there's suffering, something is wrong. That's how we think about it. Somebody messed up. 
Now, maybe we don't consciously think that way, but if you look at it more closely, I think you'll see there's truth to this. And maybe this idea comes from the Bible. It's biblical. And, and you know, uh, even if we didn't even grow up in, a, in Western cultures, uh, if we've been educated in a Western culture or are aware of the modern world, we are, uh, we can't escape, you know, the Bible, because it's there in our deepest thought, right? The Bible says that human beings suffer because they're sinners, they're arrogant, they don't obey God. Suffering is their punishment. That's what it says, you know? So if you're suffering, there's something wrong. Even though, even if it's so obvious, you know, this happened, I was walking down the street and this thing came out of the window and hit, hit me on the head, it wasn't, wasn't my fault, there's nothing I did to deserve this. Even when that's completely clear, somehow or other, in our heart of hearts, suffering is our fault. To be, to be suffering is to be wrong in some deeply disturbing way. Suffering is not normal. Suffering is failure. But bodhisattvas have a much wider view than this. You know, in all spiritual traditions, including ours, in Soto Zen, at, at all of our Dharma meetings, we always chant for healing. We have a long list of people who are ill, and we chant a sutra and we say, we dedicate this sutra to the healing of these people. And when we do that, we understand that healing doesn't necessarily mean that they become physically well. We hope they will become physically well. And if we're a doctor, or you know, we can maybe we can help heal them, and we, we can, or maybe we have advice for them or something. We want to heal them physically. But healing might be a bigger question than the healing of the body. It might be the healing of the heart, the healing of the soul, and these are also profound forms of healing maybe more profound forms of healing than physical healing. Because to heal is to become whole. And to become whole is to fully embrace your life and all of life as it is. And bodhisattvas fully appreciate this point. And they look at the suffering person not as a pathetic person who needs our help, but rather as a dignified human being who is right now, by virtue of her suffering, experiencing life at a greater depth than ever before. We need to look at those who suffer as awesome creatures who can teach us something about our own lives. Because we too are embodied human beings and we too, if not now, then soon, will also be suffering in more or less this way. Because suffering is a gift. Suffering goes along with being human. Suffering is the truth. So many of you who are affiliated with Upaya or with the Zen Peacemaker tradition of Bernie Glassman. Bernie, Bernie was an old teacher of mine too. I, I lived with Bernie in his community for uh, a while in the 1980s, so I knew Bernie well. So you all know, and I'll tell those of you who don't know, the Peacemaker orders three tenets. 
not knowing, bearing witness, and taking action. And the idea is that these three go together and they build on one another. Not knowing is to appreciate the vastness of things. To appreciate the real power of reality beyond our conceptions of it. To understand Vasubandhu's teaching that the conceptual world we create is simply that. And cannot possibly explain or appreciate the fullness of what is. That's not knowing. Based on this profound not knowing, this deep respect, even awesome respect for life and one another, we bear witness. And bearing witness is the practice of Kshanti Paramita. Bearing witness is patient forbearance. It comes from our not knowing, which compels us to face toward rather than away from suffering, to see the suffering as it really is. True seeing, unflinching seeing, without doing anything. Just being an identity with the suffering. Just being with is the practice of bearing witness. And then, based on not knowing and bearing witness, with full hearts, we just simply do what we can to help. Sometimes we can do amazing things and turn around huge situations. Sometimes we can't do much. But to practice not knowing and bearing witness is already doing a lot, more than we literally can imagine. We can bring healing just with these two practices. But then we go beyond them and we do something. We do what we can do. We speak out. We stand up. We protest. We encourage. We minister. We heal. We create. And these things can never be done with hatred or disrespect or resentment. Our enemies, those who do the terrible things we want to prevent, are also human. And there's a reason why they do what they do. And we must try to understand them, even if we do not agree. And this means that bodhisattva activism is not the same as other activisms. We appreciate all forms of activism, but bodhisattvas have a way of contributing to the activist world. Because our activism is based on Kshanti Paramita. It's based on not knowing and bearing witness. And I know that to sustain a life of caring, a life that has joy 
and happiness. This is the only way. Because to try to change the world and become enmeshed in it, enmeshed in afflictive emotion, enmeshed in one-sidedness and frustration, no matter how justified those reactions may seem, is inevitably to reduce the long-range effectiveness of our action and the sustainability of our action. Bodhisattvas are fully confident that love is always stronger than hate, that compassion is always stronger than aggression. And when, once in a while, they might forget this and become overcome with afflictive emotion or frustration or despair, they know what that is. And they know how to address it. And they always get help. Because there's no such thing as a bodhisattva alone. All bodhisattvas are together bodhisattvas. So there's always help. We're never alone. The help we need will always be there when we need it, if we look for it. So I'm, in closing, let me just take a moment to do with you uh, a practice just for a few breaths that I'm sure many of you uh, know about. It's a very famous practice, the practice of Tonglen, or sending and receiving. In times like this, with so much suffering, I think we actually need to practice sending and receiving. I, I do this now every day, just to relieve my own heart. So if you will, for a moment, just return to your body. Be aware of your body uh, sitting there. And notice how as soon as you return awareness to your body, there is a quality of stillness, peacefulness, that is inherent in the awareness itself. And it's immediately there, as soon as you return awareness to the body. And now with, be with your breathing for a few breaths. And as you breathe, try to notice how the inhale and the exhale can be just the same length. And if they aren't, try to balance them. And now as you breathe in, imagine the suffering of the whole world and breathe it in. When you breathe in, breathe it in into the stillness of your body and of your breathing 
And as you breathe out, feel how the suffering has dissolved and has become a soft, healing energy that floats out on your breath. And you can direct that soft, healing energy to the suffering world. So you breathe in the suffering, you can imagine it almost as, as a dark air. It is transformed by your awareness into a soft healing energy and you breathe out that healing and you send it to a suffering world. You can do this practice for one person who is suffering. You can imagine that person and their suffering. You can do it for a group of people who is suffering. Or you can do it for the whole world, or all of those. And you can practice this for a while. You can practice it for just one breath. And if you notice that you're being beleaguered by the suffering of the world, it's starting to get you down. Practice sending and receiving like this for one breath, for two breaths. And I think you'll find some relief. And if you yourself are in a period of time where you're suffering a lot, you can practice this way for yourself. You can breathe in your own suffering, transform it through your awareness and breathe out relief and in this case send it around back to yourself. This is a way we can practice Shanti Paramita, turning toward the suffering, taking in the suffering with confidence, not being afraid of it not wishing it would go away, being strengthened by the suffering itself. So thank you again to Upaya. Thanks all of you for listening. And it's very encouraging because I always think, you know, if there's one person who decided to listen to the Dharma, that's as good as 200 or 500 people because they're going to encounter 200 or 500 other people and they're going to be blessings for those 200 or 500 people. So uh, right now there's 526 people. So multiply that by 200 or 500 and we've got a good start toward making a better world. I, I'm, I'm actually quite confident that the world will be a better place to be. This has been our human destiny from the start. It's taking a while, but not really very long at all when you look at the big picture of things. We're getting there. We're getting there, little by little by little. Thank you, everybody. Thanks, Kosho. Kozan, sorry. Thank you, Kozan. Thank you, Norman. I'm, I, I know we're done, but I, I, I think I went on longer than expected. So if you wanted to have time for interaction, have I can do that.
we have another 25 minutes. Oh, we, have, we do. Uh, planned, yeah. Oh. For the half hour. Okay. For some Q and A, if you're up for it. Yeah, I am. I am sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um. Well, let's open it up then. If people want to 